Well, it's good to see everybody. Here we're in uh, Joel chapter one, we're in verses 18 through 20. And uh, today what's interesting is we're gonna see Joel cry out on behalf of the people of Israel. Oops, I'm getting a phone call, of course. Hey, Deb, here's your phone. There we are. As you can see, we're in uh, Joel 1, 18 through 20. And today we're going to see Joel crying out to the Lord on behalf of the people of Judah. And the irony is a lot of the people of Judah were probably crying out to Baal in order to be saved from this locust plague that they were enduring. Now, from this, we're going to be learning that God really does hear the cries of his people. He really does answer. But we're going to be wrestling with the question, what do we do when God seems to be silent? Um, how should we consider his sometimes slowness, as we think of it, in answering our prayers? And the bottom line, we're going to see that God really will rectify all of the evil and all of the things that occur that we don't like in the future day of the Lord. That's what we're going to see. There will be a time when God answers all of our prayers. So what I'm going to show you here is that Joel was the one who was calling out to Yahweh. And again, as he does this, he's interestingly using the destruction that came to the animals and the crops of the field and the trees of the field to really show that this was Judah in dire straits. They were in big trouble. Listen to what he says. Joel 1, 18 through 20 says, How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now, the first thing I want to point out is notice here the beasts were groaning. Notice that up in verse 18. And then down in verse 20, it also says that the beasts of the field were panting for God. So here, I think very astutely, Joel is using even the desperation of the animals to show what kind of condition Judah was in. And I think the text shows us that here, even these animals are suffering because of the sinfulness of Judah, because God's covenant people have broken their covenant with him. Now, in the Bible, the Bible certainly shows us that animals are important. They're part of God's creation. But remember, they're never elevated to being on par with human beings. Human beings are made in God's image. Animals aren't. But nonetheless, they are to be treated with respect. We see back in Deuteronomy 25.4 that even the ox that was treading out the grain was never to be muzzled. And so we see that, yes, animals are to be respected. They're to be cared for. And the irony is God's people here, because of their sin, is creating destruction even in the environment, even on the animal life itself. In fact, what's interesting to me is to see that this drought that comes upon Judah, in fact, it's not just a locust plague. Notice the evidence. Notice it says that there was water or fire that came. There was no water, obviously, because there was fire that had devoured the pastures. Notice there was the brooks had dried up and there was fire that had devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So there was obviously this drought that accompanied the locust plague. Now, that's important because if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, remember that God overcame the barrenness of the land when he sent rain. So before that he sent rain, 
there was barrenness in the land. There was no shrub that had come up. There was no vegetation. So God sending rain overcomes the barrenness of the land. The irony is here, the covenant people of God who have the promised land shouldn't have barrenness. They should have fruitfulness. So here, their idolatry, because they're trusting in the creator rather than, excuse me, the creation rather than the creator, they're getting barrenness rather than fruitfulness. And so I think that's a lesson that we see from this passage is idolatry does not lead to fruitful living. It doesn't lead to utopia. It leads to a barren world. Going back to the tohu and bohu, the formless and voidness of the way the world was before God intervenes. If you reject your creator, it doesn't lead to good things. But the big picture I want to focus on is notice here, Joel the prophet was crying out to the Lord. He's crying out to Yahweh. And it's very significant because throughout the history of Israel, the prophets of God would all, um, a lot of times they would intercede on behalf of prayer. Uh, we see this with Moses. Uh, in, remember in Exodus chapter 32, he intervened on behalf of inter Israel. He interceded for them as they went into idolatry. We see this in Jeremiah 42. Jeremiah interceded for Judah. We see Amos chapter 7. The prophet Amos interceded on behalf of Judah. And now here Joel does. And so notice the term cry. The term cry in Hebrew, kara, means to call out or to summon Yahweh in the time of need, okay? Now, one of the things I want to point out is remember the timeline I'd given you some weeks ago. Remember Baal worship had come upon Judah in a big way during the time that Joel was writing his book. In fact, in the year 845 BC, there was a wicked queen, and the only time, by the way, that a queen had sat over Judah, named Athaliah. She came to power. She was the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. Remember Ahab and Jezebel, they were king and queen over the northern tribes of Israel. Well, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was from Phoenicia. And Phoenicians often worship Baal. Well, that's exactly what Athaliah did. She ends up becoming queen through a marriage over Judah. And so what she does is she brings Baal worship mainstream around 845 B.C. I believe this book is probably written about 840, 835 B.C., right in there. And so the problem is a lot of the people in Judah are worshiping Baal. In fact, I think many of them would have cried out to Baal using a phrase very similar to what Joel had used. They would say something like, to you, Baal, I cry. Now, interestingly enough, the term Baal literally means husband. Okay, so the reason they called out to Baal is because he was the Canaanite fertility god. If you wanted to get rid of a drought, if you wanted to have a good crop, if you were a pagan, you called upon Baal. He was the husband of the land. But instead, Joel cries out to Yahweh. He demonstrates the true God, the true creator, who is the one who cares for his people, the one who gives a bumper crop. It's Yahweh. It's not Baal. In fact, remember in Jeremiah 31, 32, it was Yahweh who said that he was a husband to Israel. So he is the one that they should look for. Now, Again, let's go back to this term cry. Again, this crying out to the Lord is important because he has promised to hear his people. He is the one who not only created all things, but he is the one who sustains all things. And by the way, that's what we see about Jesus. 
Jesus in the New Testament is Yahweh. In fact, he says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring himself to be the covenant-keeping God, the creator of all things. But in Colossians 1, 17, we see that Jesus is not just the creator, but he's the sustainer of all things. So in other words, we can trust him for our provision. And that's one of the reasons we as Christians don't worry about the problem of global warming. We don't worry about those movies that Hollywood puts out where the asteroid comes and destroys the whole earth. Why? Well, because we have a God who's not only the creator, but the sustainer. He sustains all things. He's in control. There's not a single random molecule anywhere in the universe. And so, again, we live in a day and age where pagans are crying out to all sorts of remedies to natural disasters that they perceive. But you and I have to have the witness just like Joel did, to say, no, we're going to cry out to Yahweh. If we have troubles, we know who is the sustainer. The sustainer is the creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one other thing I want to point out here is notice again the term cry. The term cry can also be used for call. The term is kara, and you're going to see that develop later in Joel 2.32. Remember, Joel 2.32 is all about the last days when God pours out his spirit upon all mankind and the sons and daughters will prophesy, etc., etc. Well, at the end of that, in Joel 2.32, he says, and it will come about that whoever calls, there's kara, same term as cry from our Joel 1 here, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Now, I want you to remember that this is very important because it has to do with how one can be saved before the day of the Lord comes. And the apostle Peter himself borrows right from that passage in the very first sermon that was ever given to the church at Pentecost in Acts. So if you remember, he cites this very thing saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the whole point of Peter's sermon at Pentecost is to prove that the name of the Lord that you should call on is Jesus. Again, why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. You should call on him. And if you'll call on him before the day of the Lord, he will hear, he will answer, and he will save. That's the issue. Okay, now I want to talk about how God answers prayer. And the question we're going to wrestle with is, does God always hear his people? One of the great promises that we see in scriptures is that when the people of God cry out to him, we call out in our time of need, he will hear us and he will save us. Now, I'm going to share with you here a passage that succinctly proves that point. It's from Psalm 34. Now, Psalm 34 was a passage or a psalm that was written by David when he was in great trouble. Remember, David spent much of his life on the run from Saul. And he was in trouble with enemies at various times. He was even in trouble with his own family at times. So here, this passage in Psalm 34 was written when David was before this Philistine king. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 21. And if you remember, there was a Philistine king named Achish. Well, he was probably going to kill David, but David feigned or pretended to be crazy. And you remember the Philistine king said, I don't want this guy in my presence. Get him out of here. Why did you bring a a nut job like this in, uh, a crazy man to, to stand before me. And so God used that supernaturally, David's crazy act, to deliver him. And so what David does in Psalm 34 is he says, when the righteous cry out to God, he hears them. Psalm 34, 17 through 19, notice the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, very interesting. Notice David's contention is that when the righteous cry, and he would have been the righteous, he knew he had faith in Yahweh. When they cry out to him, what does the Lord do? The Lord hears. Now, notice David doesn't say when humanity cries out, the Lord hears. No, it's only when the righteous cry. And that's, I think, one of the lessons here in this text is we have to know it's only the people of God and those who belong by faith to God, which is synonymous, that God hears. So we have to understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the unique privilege and duty to intercede before God or with God in prayer. And I want to show you where that comes from. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. What I want you to see is that the pagan world, because they are enemies of God, because they are not righteous, God does not hear their prayers. It is only for the people of God. We uniquely, through faith in Christ, have access to the throne of grace. And I want to show you where that's succinctly stated in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. So please, again, turn your Bibles to Romans 5, 1 through 2. I'll read it up here on my notes page up above. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. I like the ESV version here, and I'll explain why in a moment. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Hope you've turned there. Notice here, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Notice through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. So we are no longer enemies of God. Every person prior to coming to faith in Christ is an enemy of God. So God does not hear his enemies. He hears, according to Psalm 34, 17, the cry of the righteous. Now continue on in Romans 5, 2. Paul goes on to say, through him, that's through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, the phrase I want to focus on there in Romans 5, 2 is this obtaining access. Um, I think in the New American Standard Bible, it says we've received our introduction, something like that. The idea that you want to see there in the Greek is that this access that we have now to God's grace is something that we never had when we were the enemies of God. We never had access to his grace. We never had access to the throne of grace. And so there's a passage, I think, by implication, succinctly shows us that this is unique, this privilege in being able to pray and to cry out to God. Now, a couple other things I want to point out. One thing that's very interesting about this text, notice verse 20. Notice in verse 20 in the red, it says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Do you remember, this is fulfilled in the gospel when Jesus is on the cross. You can read about that in John 19.36. Again, John 19.36. You don't have to turn to it, but if you're a note taker, you can jot that down. So do you remember when Jesus is on the cross, the religious leaders want to get him down. The Sabbath is coming. And so they sledge and break the legs of the criminals because they were still alive. So the way you died on the cross is you would asphyxiate. You couldn't breathe. You constantly had to hold yourself up to breathe. Well, when they break the legs, you can't breathe anymore and you die that way. Well, when they came to Jesus, remember they had broken the bones of the criminals. They came to him. He was already dead because of the 
tremendous beating that he had taken prior to even the crucifixion. And so he'd already died. So God providentially uses that to fulfill this passage that he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, the reason why it ultimately applies to the Messiah is because he's truly the righteous one. In fact, he's the righteous one par excellence. He's the righteous one that David wasn't. There is not one righteous, no, not one, except Jesus ultimately. And all of the righteous, that the righteousness that we have by faith is a derived righteousness that comes from him. So as Jesus is on the cross and none of his bones are broken, he's fulfilling not just Psalm 3420, he's fulfilling Exodus 12:46 that none of the Passover bones uh, lamb's bones would be broken. So Jesus is fulfilling the imagery of the Passover lamb. If you trust in him, you'll be passed over. None of his bones are broken. But he's also fulfilling the imagery of the righteous man par excellence. God kept all of his bones. All right. Now, this ties into the segue that I want to lead you to. Notice what David is claiming God will do for the righteous when we cry out to him in prayer. Notice in the boxes, he says he delivers them out of all their troubles. Okay, notice all their troubles. All right, that's something we have to think about. Now, he also doubles down. He says he delivers him out of them all. Now, as I read that myself, I think, well, wait a minute. Come on, he can't certainly deliver us from all of our troubles. Oh, yes, that's the promise, and he does. But the question is, I know many of you have gone through troubles. Many of you are in trouble. And you think about, well, how does God deliver the righteous from all of the troubles when we cry out to him in prayer? Obviously, that's what Joel was doing. How did God hear then? Well, what I want to do is show you, first of all, how God delivered Jesus, because, again, he's the ultimate righteous one. Then I'm going to show you how he delivers us all. It's the same model. So I want you to think about in Jesus' life, he suffers mightily. In fact, he suffers more than any man. Why? Because he takes upon himself the full measure of the wrath on behalf of his people. And so he suffers this horrible cross, excuse me, this horrible death on the cross. He suffers mightily. But after his death, right away, his exaltation begins. Now, the reason I say that is think about the exaltation in this way. First of all, after his death, the Lord keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Remember to the Jews, they even buried their own people and they would gather the bones. They thought that that was somehow important in the resurrection. So that was a sign of blessing if you kept all of your bones. And so right away, that's very subtle. You think, well, that's not a lot of, a lot of exaltation or deliverance, but it starts to build. Isaiah 53, 9, written some 700 years prior to Christ's first coming, stated that when the suffering righteous one, the Messiah, when he would die, he would be buried with the wealthy. And that also was a sign of deliverance, a sign of exaltation in the ancient Near East. Sure enough, in Jesus' life, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But remember, it doesn't stop there. That's just, again, slight exaltation. But Isaiah 53.10 also said that the one who died and was buried with the wealthy, his days would be prolonged. And so it foreshadowed that what? He would have to be raised from the dead because he would see his offspring, Isaiah 53.10. And so, yes, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead bodily on the third day. And in that way, remember Hosea 6, Hosea 6, God said he would raise up the righteous, what, on the third day. And in that way, he delivered 
suffers the righteous from all their troubles. Jesus ascended on high. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he is reigning. He has been delivered from all of his troubles. Now, what about us? Well, there's a lot of troubles that we're going to go through in this life, but there is not one trouble that we have that the future resurrection and glorification will not fix. That's the great promise. The ultimate deliverance may not happen here and now, but it will in the future day of the Lord. And that's the deliverance that Joel is ultimately going to be talking about in Joel chapter 2 and especially in Joel chapter 3. Okay, now with that, how does God answer our cry? I want to talk about this, how God answers our prayers. Because he does, as I said in Psalm 34, he does promise to answer the cries of the righteous. Now, as I give you, I'm going to give you three different ways God answers our prayers here and now. But I want you to realize that these three ways that God answers our prayer is predicated on us praying according to God's will. So if you're praying that God would make you a better bank robber, um, don't count on these types of answers. Okay, it has to be that we're praying according to his will. So the first thing that God can say when we cry out to him is, yes, I will act now. And I think a great example in our own lives at, as a church at Gospel of Grace Fellowship is when we cried out to the Lord on behalf of Bob. Uh, Bob, to me, is one of the greatest theologians America has ever put out. And, and I say that um, I'm probably embarrassing him. But remember, he said he was so sick. All he could say is, God, help me. And he cried out and the church was crying out and God delivered him. And praise God for that. We have Bob back. And so there's times where God will say, yes, I'm going to act right now. And he does supernaturally, miraculously on behalf of his people. He certainly does. We've seen evidence firsthand in our own lives. But there are times when God will say, yes, I will act, but I'm going to act in my timing. I'm going to act later. Now, I'm going to show you evidence where we see this, where people, the people of God actually cried out and God said, yes, I'm going to answer, but I'm going to do it later. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. I'll pull that up on my notes page here. Revelation 6, 11. Please turn your Bibles to that. And as you're turning to it, the reason I want you to turn to, uh, excuse me, Revelation 6, again, verse 11, is because remember in Revelation 6, you have this throne room vision where you have believers who have died because of their faith in Christ during the 70th week of Daniel. So they're inside the last seven years. They previously didn't believe, but they came to faith in that last seven years. Well, when they came to faith, they were murdered. They were murdered because of their faith in Jesus. So they're going to be in the throne room here crying out. Listen to what it says on the screen, Revelation 6.10. We'll start there. It says, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, notice again, the saints are crying out. They're calling out to the Lord. They're calling out for justice because they were killed and murdered by what? By those who dwell on the earth. Remember that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, occurs eight times in Revelation, always referring to unbelievers. So here, the righteous in heaven are crying out to God for vengeance and justice against unbelievers. Now, how does God answer that? He says, yes, I'm going to wipe them out immediately. No, listen to what he says. Revelation 6, 11. It says, and there was given to each of them a white robe. 
And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So notice the answer God says is, yes, I'm going to act, but you're going to have to wait until the rest of the martyrs come in. So remember in Revelation, when you get to Revelation chapter 20, all of the saints who were murdered during that last seven years are going to be given a resurrection. So they had to wait until that time for God to answer their prayers. And yet he said, yes, I'll answer it, but I'm going to do it later. Okay, that's what God often does. Now, there are times when God says that he's not going to answer our prayer now. He says no. In a sense, he's saying, no, my grace is sufficient for now. There are times when the people of God suffer. There are times when the cowboy doesn't ride out into the sunset, the good guy on, on the white horse. It doesn't work. There are times when God doesn't answer our prayers, even though we cry out to him. But when I say that he doesn't answer our prayers, I'm not saying he's not answering them. I'm saying that he's saying, no, my grace is sufficient for now. But the phrase for now is very important because one day God is going to answer. He is going to deliver us in the future day of the Lord. But there are times when he says, no, I'm not going to answer that during your life now. I'm going to give you grace so that you can endure. And I'm going to answer it in the future day of the Lord. Let me give you an example of this on this next slide. Remember, the Apostle Paul was brought up to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. He says that he had seen great and magnificent revelations. He was brought up to see, I think, the, the New Jerusalem. And so, so magnificent and so filled with grandeur were these revelations that he was given that God sent him this thorn in the flesh that came from Satan in order to keep him humble. Well, here, I want you to see what Paul says about this and what God did and how he prayed. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 9, Paul said, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, let's stop there for a moment in verse 7. Notice here, when he says that, He's telling us the reason why he was given this thorn in the flesh. It was to keep him from exalting. The point in saying that is we don't often know why God does what he does. Paul, who was an apostle, it was revealed to him. It was revealed to him why he was given the thorn in the flesh. Sometimes you have a thorn in the flesh and you don't know why. Why? Because you're not an apostle. It wasn't revealed to you. But it was revealed to Paul. Also notice that where did it come from? It came from a messenger of Satan. That should bring us back to Job. Remember Job 1, Satan was the one who was within the divine council who asked permission to sift Job. And remember, he couldn't do anything unless God allowed it. So God is sovereign over what Satan does. Okay, but Satan was the one who sent this thorn in the flesh. God allowed it. Now, the reason I say that is notice verse 8, Paul doesn't start bossing Satan around and telling him he rebukes him and binding him and all that stuff that we see a lot of false teachers do. But instead, he goes to the throne of grace. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Verse 9, it says, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So what did Paul do? He cried out to the Lord. In fact, he cried out three times. But the answer that came to the apostle Paul was no. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, 
I know many of you perhaps are suffering now during this pandemic. Your, your businesses are shut down. You're not able to work. Uh, perhaps some of you know people that have been sick or ill. Uh, perhaps it has nothing to do with the pandemic. Maybe you're just suffering because of other things, illnesses that you had prior to the pandemic. Or perhaps you have a situation with your family that's very dire. Whatever it is, you've been crying out, and it seems as if the Lord is saying no. Sometimes he does. Sometimes the answer won't come, ultimately, until the future day of the Lord. But dear ones, what we can know is that we can go to God in prayer and that he will answer. Now, I want to talk about when God says wait to our prayers. And I think it's one of the most difficult things as Christians to go through when we keep crying out to God for relief from the suffering that we have. And it seems he continuously says wait. Now, I want to go back in history in the scriptures to look at a saint who suffered in this way, of course, Job. Job suffered and God said, wait. In fact, remember Job, the setting of it is really a theodicy. Um, a theodicy is a type of literature where God is vindicated, both his goodness and his providential care over creation, even though there's the existence of evil and suffering. So again, let me give you that definition. A theodicy is a type of literature where God is vindicated in both his goodness and his providential care, even though you have the existence of evil and suffering. In a sense, Job is a theodicy where God ends up being vindicated. Now, remember, Job is one of the earliest books written. It was written probably during the time of the patriarchs. That's when Job existed, around the 1800 BC range. And he came from a land called Uz, U-Z, if you're to transliterate that. Um, that was southeast of the Dead Sea, kind of in the Edomite, Moabite area, kind of in that uh, area. Well, remember, Job was a righteous man. He obviously had faith, but Satan asked permission to sift him. And in so doing, when God gives the permission, Job loses money of his family. He ends up becoming ill. He loses his livelihood, at least a lot of his possessions. He is absolutely devastated. And to make matters worse, his friends who are supposed to give him comfort accuse him and saying, well, the reason you're suffering, Job, must be because you're a worse sinner than everyone else. So bad is it, notice how Job cries out in Job 19, verses 7 through 10. He says, behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He, now notice he, he's talking about God. He has walled me walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has put darkness on my paths. Verse nine, he has stripped my honor from my head and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And he has uprooted my hope like a tree. This is Job being very honest. He cries out to the Lord, but he doesn't see an answer. And I think some people that are listening to this will be at one point in their life in a similar situation where you, you cry out to the Lord, but there doesn't seem to be an answer. There just seems to be darkness continuously, continuous struggle, continuous hurt. It never relents. That's the way it was, at least up until this point for Job. Now, as I'm going to show you later in Job 19, that's not the end of the story. But what I want you to realize is there are times when God seems to be silent, when he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you for now you have to wait. And so we have to realize that the scripture isn't teaching some doctrine like the word of faith movement does. 
where you're going to have perfection here and now. No, sometimes the good guy loses. Sometimes the saint loses their battle with a terminal disease. That's what happens in this life. But when God says, wait, it doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. One day, he will, in fact, answer the question, and he will act on our behalf. Now, I want to talk about the dilemma that the book of Job poses and the idea that suffering poses for the people of God. How is it that we can cry out to God even when there's evil done and he doesn't immediately answer and remedy the problem? Well, this has created a dilemma that atheists often use against us as Christians. And let me put up the dilemma and explain why we have to have an answer for it. The dilemma is this. The atheist will say to us as Christians, because evil exists, either God can't do anything about it or he is unloving to allow it. So a dilemma is where in debate you give your opponent two bad options, neither of which they want to affirm. Well, that's what the atheists have been doing to Christians for years and years. Hey, if your God exists and evil exists, either God is not omnipotent, he can't do anything about it, or if he can do something about it, he's not loving enough to do something about it. So either they're claiming God is not omnipotent or he's not all loving. So whatever God you Christians believe in that's revealed in the Bible, he certainly doesn't exist. That's their point. Now, so powerful of a dilemma do some think this is, they go to great lengths to try to answer it. In fact, many of you have heard of the heresy called open theism. Bob DeWay actually debated Greg Boyd. Well, open theism is really a philosophical answer to this question. I think it's a false one. In fact, it's really bad. Think about what uh, Greg Boyd is saying. To, the, to answering this dilemma, what Greg Boyd is saying is, yeah, it's not that God is not omnipotent, and it's not that God is not all-loving. Greg Boyd's answer in the open theist is that God doesn't know the future, the future choices of free moral agents, and so therefore God can't be on the hook for what they do. So again, what does Greg Boyd do? He attacks a attribute of God, the, the, the fact that God is omniscient. In fact, remember in John chapter 20, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And I think it was the third time. Finally, Peter becomes exacerbated. Remember, Peter had denied Christ three times. Jesus asked the question three times. He's restoring him. But remember, finally, Peter being just not knowing what to say, he says, Lord, well, you know all things. He's, he's exacerbated. Okay, but when he says, you know all things, he was saying the truth. Jesus, who is God, knows all things. So open theism isn't the answer. Well, the answer that I think we have in Scripture about the question of suffering when we cry out to God and the question of evil is twofold. Number one, that God uses evil for good. Okay, that's how powerful our God is. It's not that he just lets evil go willy-nilly, but rather God uses it redemptively for his glory and for the edification of his people. God uses evil for good. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean God is using gratuitous evil. No, he restrains still all the unnecessary evil. He uses just the right amount of evil to bring about the best possible outcome. All right. So, for example, Bob had mentioned this, by the way, at the beginning of the pandemic back in March. Remember Joseph. Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. 
the other tribe members of Israel. They throw him into a pit because they want to do evil to him. They want him out of their lives. They don't like him. They don't love their brother. But remember what Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph's being thrown into the pit allowed him to become a powerful man in the kingdom of Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh. And that enabled the Israelites to survive the famine. So God used it for good for the survival of Israel from whom the Messiah came. Uh, Think about in Acts 2.23. In fact, turn your Bibles to Acts 2.23. Let's look at that. I'm going to show you another concrete case where God uses evil for good. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.23. The reason I want you to turn there is this is one that you could point out to people if you run into an atheist who uses this dilemma, you can have Genesis 50, verse 20, and Acts 2.23 in your back pocket to show that no, God uses evil for good. Acts 2.23, remember here, Peter again is preaching the first sermon at Pentecost, talking about Christ, Acts 2.23. Peter says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here you had evil men who crucified Christ. They were attacking God's moral law, thou shalt not murder, especially attacking the Son of God. And yet God used it to bring the redemption for his people, to purchase his people, to atone for them so that they would have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. God used the evil of the crucifixion of Christ for great good. Now there's a second way in which God is going to answer the problem of evil, and that is he will overcome all evil in the future. You see, that's the great answer, that one day God wins. That's really a summary of the entire book of Revelation. What's the book of Revelation about? Well, God wins, and therefore so do his people. No more suffering, no more evil, no more trials. That's ultimately the answer that God gives. Now, let's look at this as God overcomes all evil. I'm going to pull up here Revelation chapter 21, But before I put up Revelation chapter 21, remember, this is in the day of the Lord. So let's put our timeline together. Remember, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. Right after the rapture of the church, you have a seven-year period in which God pours his wrath upon the world. He's going to be judging the nations. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes back with the church. He sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He destroys the enemies surrounding Jerusalem. And then he sets up a thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom. After that a thousand years, Jesus is going to get rid of the old heavens, the old earth. And he's going to create a new heavens, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. That's where we pick it up in Revelation chapter 21. It's still within the broad day of the Lord. And in Revelation 21, what was taken from us at the garden, the paradise with God, and communion with God is now reestablished. And by the way, as we're reading Revelation 21, where are all the unbelievers? Well, they're thrown in the lake of fire. So there's no more evildoers. There's going to be no more evil being done. It's been thrown down. And when evil is thrown down, this is the ultimate answer to the question. Listen to what John describes. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, let's stop there in verse 3 for just a moment. Notice here the promise is one day in the New Jerusalem, we're going to be tabernacling with God in perfection. 
So we had that as human beings in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did. But sin created the separation with God. We were kicked out of the garden. So we could no longer, notice on the screen, we could no longer, what, tabernacle with God, right? So Jesus, at his first coming, he ends up tabernacling with us. He becomes a man so that he can live the perfect life and no human being, so that he can have a substitutionary death on the cross to pay our debt. And so that's what John chapter 1 is about. It's about God coming down to tabernacle with us again in the first advent so that he can restore us. Well, that's just the inauguration, the first advent of this restoration. The consummation of the restoration occurs here in the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Here, God is tabernacling with us. And what was taken away at the garden because of our sin is now reestablished. Communion with God in perfection. Notice verse 4. What is God going to do? It says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Dear ones, I want you to notice here in verse 4, I want you to notice that God is promising that he's going to wipe away every tear. Now, he does so not because he introduces uh, that uh, Johnson & Johnson baby shampoo. Okay, it's, it's remember, no more tears. It's not because of that. The reason he's going to get rid of every tear is because there's no longer going to be the problem of suffering and evil. Notice here, what's wiped away is death. There's no more death. There's no longer any mourning. There's no longer any crying. There's no longer any pain. And this gets back to God, how he uses evil. See, he's using evil to bring the greatest good possible. Because providentially, what God is doing through evil is he's allowing us to see how great his new creation is. Think about it this way. I've used this analogy before, but bear with me. Think about it. You don't know how sweet it is to have a day off unless you've worked very hard by the sweat of your brow. Otherwise, every day is a light. But if you've worked hard, you can say, oh, it's so good to have a day off. How do you know how sweet it is to be healthy unless you've been sick? How do you know how sweet it is to have loved ones that live unless you've experienced death? And so God is going to be using all of those prior evils and sufferings so that when we're in the heavenly realm, we'll say, do you remember what it was like? Do you remember what it was like to have a stomach virus and how violent you, it just, it was terrible. But now look at it. Do you remember how difficult it was when you were a bricklayer and you had to work outside and, or whatever you did? And look at it now. The, the thorns and the thistles are removed. Do you remember how wicked it was where we had to bury our loved ones? Well, that's all gone. And so God is going to be using all of the former evils to bring glory to himself so that we can see him overcome it. So God is using the problem of evil, the problem of unanswered prayer until now in the day of the Lord, to bring the greatest possible world for his people and to bring glory for himself. Now, notice here in verse 5, he says, behold, I am making all things new. That's the answer. The answer isn't as the pagan world has it. Uh, some pagans think of reincarnation. Or karma. Think about how evil karma is that comes from the Eastern tradition. That no, you don't have God giving you a glorious kingdom, but instead you have to keep coming back. And you have to work off all your previous sins. This is why mothers in India will break the arms of their children 
because they want to make them look like worse beggars or better beggars. They're a broken arm because after all, that's their lot in life. They had some bad karma and they came back in the caste of a beggar. The caste system is all because of karma and it does great evil. That's the answer. Or how about Buddhism? They look for nirvana or this escaping into the oneness where you just cease to exist. Well, that doesn't sound real thrilling. Think about the Marxist dream. The Marxist dream is to take wicked people, take from one group of wicked people and give it to another group of wicked people and somehow bring a glorious utopia. Well, that's not going to work. So every other system the pagans come up with, it's short, far short of what God is going to do. Every other system that the world comes up with is going to lead to Babylon and to greater evil. But by God's grace and his power, he comes up with the new Jerusalem. Pagans bring the new Babylon. God, through his grace and power, is going to bring the new Jerusalem and the ultimate answer to our prayers. He will overcome all the suffering and the evils for his people. That's the great promise. So even if God says to our prayers, know my grace is sufficient, one day we will no longer suffer. Right now, think about the Apostle Paul. Is the Apostle Paul suffering with his thorn in the flesh? No. Will the Apostle Paul suffer with a thorn in the flesh when he's given his resurrected body? No. When God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, that grace was temporary for his life on earth. But one day God is going to overcome all the evils for all of us. And this is exactly what Job looked forward to. I want to show you as Job suffered in Job 19, as he cried out, there seemed to be no way. I want to show you that he really did have a hope. Job 19, 25 through 27, Job who suffered greatly, who seemed to have no way out when he even he cried out to God. Notice what he says here in verse 25 through 27. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Now, this is a beautiful expression of faith by Job. I want you to see here in verse 25, when he says, I know that my redeemer lives. The redeemer there, that term is goel. It has to do with a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer who would have to purchase back for the family that which had been lost. And of course, the ultimate kinsman redeemer he's referring to is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who has promised and has accomplished the redemption of his people by his blood. He's the greatest Goel, the greatest kinsman redeemer who has ever lived. And notice how we know he's referring to him because he says at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. I want you to think about a passage we read last week, Zechariah 14. The Messiah who left from the Mount of Olives, it said in Zechariah 14, is bringing his feet back to the Mount of Olives, right? He's going to take his stand upon the earth. And what is he going to do? He's going to fight against all the enemies of God that are surrounding Jerusalem, and he's going to destroy their evil. He's going to throw it down. There's going to be a throwdown, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's bringing it. He's the greatest warrior, the greatest redeemer of all time. That's where Job's hope is. Now, notice what he says in verses 26 through 27. He says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So he's claiming this isn't some ethereal experience, but this is one he's going to see in a vindicated form in his own body. In fact, 
Notice in verse 27, he doubles down. He says, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. Now, why is Job going to such great lengths to saying it's me? I'm going to see this vindication because in antiquity, in the ancient Near East, many people would say, well, you know, I'm going to live on through the progeny, my children, my sons and daughters. They believed that the only way a person would live on was that they would live vicariously through their sons and daughters and their grandchildren. That was very common in the patriarchal period in the ancient Near East. What Job is showing is that, no, it's not going to be some stunt double, some stand-in, some cousin, some relative, a son, a daughter, uh, any grandchildren. It's he himself that's going to behold with his own eyes the vindication that comes from the great Goel. Dear ones, that's the answer. The answer is when we cry out to God in our trials, he will hear, he will deliver. Now, I know, again, so many of you have been suffering uh, with different uh, medical ailments. We see the prayer requests, we do pray. We know many of you have been suffering through the uh, financial crisis because of the pandemic. Some of you out there, I know you're saying, this is the best days of my life. Things are going well. You know what? We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So if you're rejoicing, I rejoice with you. The news is still good. The best is yet to come. But if things are very bad for you, don't think that you're alone. Job suffered. The apostle Paul suffered. And most importantly, Jesus Christ, the great redeemer, the great Goel, he suffered. But God does answer the prayers of his people. He will answer the prayers and deliver us from all of our troubles. When Joel cried out on behalf of the people of Israel, God did hear. Now, did they sin again? Yes. But ultimately, Joel chapter 3 that we're going to come to is all about God hearing the prayers of his people and intervening in the day of the Lord, where he's going to have a throwdown. He's going to throw down all evil, and he's going to save his people finally and forever. That's the great news that we see here today. Now, let me just bow our heads in prayer, and I want to open it up to some questions and discussion. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the promises that you give to us in Scripture, that when we cry out to you, even if you say no for now, we know that your grace is sufficient for us and that you will redeem us and that you will perfect all things for us in the glorious new kingdom. But we do thank you, Lord, that we have the right to go to the throne of grace through the blood of your son. We do thank you that you answer our prayers, that you hear us when we cry out to you. And I do pray, Lord, for those who are hurting in our congregation, for those who may be hurting that are listening to this. I do pray, Lord, that you would give them encouragement knowing that their vindication is coming all because of the great Redeemer who lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open it up here to questions, comments, ideas, anything you have. Now, I'm going to have to stop sharing my screen, I think. There we are. All right. There. Hey, hold on. It's working. Hey, Bob. Hey, there Eric. are people out there. I, was, I thought I was just uh, looking at a white light. I was starting to get blinded there. There's people. Great. Great to see everybody. All right. Yeah, come here and talk into the mic. 
Hi, Eric. Oh, hey, Brian. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, say, I thought a good example of uh, when people cry out to God and then the uh, when God says not now but later, I think a good example of that is Lazarus where they cried out and God could have gone right away and, and, and saved uh, uh, Lazarus either while he was still sick or two or three days, but he wanted it to go to the fourth day and, and that was beneficial to uh, uh, them at that time. Great point. That's a, that's a great... Uh, that's a good reading. That is. That's very good. You know, Brian, it's interesting too about you. that is, you remember he, um, he's called by Martha, the, the, his, his sister, remember he, she says he's a four-dayer. That's literally the term that's used in the Greek. And probably it's because that's when the Israelites believe official decay began. So he had officially begun decay. Things were very hopeless. He really needed a real resurrection. But think about this too. He died again. Right now, Lazarus is back in the tomb, so he was never given a glorified body, a resurrected body like Christ. So that's why Christ can be the first fruits of the resurrection. But what that means is one day the ultimate answer is still in the future day of the Lord. So even though he was raised and he seemed to overcome a lot of his problems there and then, he has problems now. He's, he's in the grave, his body is, even though he uh, in soul is with the Lord. So again, it shows us that the future redemption for every believer still is in the future. Absolutely. Thanks. So I was thinking about um, the goodness of God in the land of the living. And uh, one of the things that God's been showing me recently is um, there's, I don't know if it was Job or who said it, but he said, I would have despaired if I didn't see, the, if I didn't believe I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And, you know, not speaking about heaven. And one of the yeah. things I've seen in principle that God doesn't change is uh, that, you know, and, and one of the things that I, I used to kind of question it was, was, um, was like, what about those people that died in prison? Uh, like there's Richard Wernbrandt talked about one guy that was in there 40 years. They made him run every day, 10 hours a day. He got, you know, transferred to an even colder place. Um, Richard was in Romania and finally he died. And I thought, you know what, how does, you know, how does God's goodness in the land of the living, how is that promise fulfilled in that guy's life? And, uh, one of the things I saw was that, well, for one, God gave different graces. You know, he always gives us grace to sustain each day, but there's promises more than that. There's not just sustaining grace. Um, I noticed that uh, Richard Wormbrandt, when he started sharing some of his testimonies of what God did for him in prison, um, a lot of them were miraculous. Uh, for instance, he had a, a guy that was, uh, he was on his deathbed and he was next to the guard. Some of the guards got uh, put in the same prison cell that, uh, that the, that the uh, Christians or any other people were put in just because they mistreated people and then they, all, they, hated some, they hated each other so much that sometimes the other guards would throw the other guards in prison. So he was being tortured too. And so here's this guard and the, I think it was the guard that was dying actually and he was uh, next to the guy that, was, um, that he was torturing. So he tortured a Christian, you know, and here the guard is put in prison. And, and this is what God let Richard Wormbrandt just witness and just be refreshed with was the, the prisoner that the guard was torturing was actually stroking his head and telling him, you know, because he just, God filled him with so much love at that moment. And he was telling him, you know, about the love of God, and he was just comforting him right into eternity. He watched him die. But, um, you know, God supernaturally did a lot of things like that to the point where Richard Wormbrandt said the torture was real, the prison was real, 
but um, God, he said it was, God was so surreal, he was so much better than the pain, that he said, I, I, I wish I was back there, you know, sometimes. He said, and, and he just, I just, that stuck out to me a lot, because he said that, and he, he was like, yeah, I would, God was more real there, uh, sometimes I wish I was back there, and I was just like, what, you know, but that, that's the promise God has, no matter what he has for us, like you look at the suffering of Job, uh, at the end of it, you know, he doubled everything Job had in his life. So God had a purpose. He didn't just make Job just to suffer and not show him his loving kindness. And one of the things I was looking through, I was looking through Jeremiah. There's some other miserable prophets in the Bible, and Jeremiah was one of them. And Jeremiah, I didn't realize, but he was one of the other people that said, you know, cursed be the day of my birth, cursed be the arms that received me. And I was like, you know, looking through this guy and how he was just, a, he was, you know, to rebuke a people that didn't even listen to him. And then they went into captivity after it. And I was kind of disturbed at Jeremiah. I was like, God, you know, your principles don't change. But, um, but you know, I, let me see it in Jeremiah. Let me see who you are. And I noticed sometimes Jeremiah was so miserable and he was grumbling. But other times I saw such contentment even in, even in suffering. You know, like one of the times Jeremiah, they were saying, you know, we'd like to kill him. And Jeremiah said, you know, it's just, I could just see it in the way that he phrased it. He said, um, you know, you can kill me. That's fine, but just know that God sent a, a prophet here uh, and that, you know, that I'm telling you the truth or, you know, I can, and that, that he's going to hold it against you if you kill my innocent blood. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted, I, Eric mentioned that folks prayed for me. I want to share a praise report that's just from yesterday. Uh, twice a year I have a very, very comprehensive blood test given by, because I have a really rare condition called Schertz-Strauss syndrome. It almost killed me a couple times. And um, you all prayed for me. Eric mentioned that. Well, yesterday the report came back from my blood test. I've never heard this from the particular doctor. He said, your blood results are great. Praise and the shirt the Strauss the shirt Strauss indicators are negative. Wow! And so um, wow! Praise I, God! Uh, you know, I'll keep getting my treatment, but the fact is that I told Diane, "Well, no wonder I feel so good." Wow! I, Eric, Praise God. Bob, that's awesome. That's I, great news. I feel so good. That's, I think I'll, I'll keep preaching and, and go fishing too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Praise God. That is that is wonderful. You know, um, Bob, I remember when you were feeling really sick, I remember you had put away your fishing lures. And about a couple of years ago, I remember you had taken those out again. And to me, your fishing lures, when you were working on that, that was a sign that you had hope. And I'll never forget that, that, uh, you know, God answers prayers. He really does. He, he says, yes, I'll act now. And he did. And so praise be to God for that. Well, we're, we're out of time here. Thank you, Eric, for yeah, sharing thanks, with thanks. us. I miss everybody. Well, I'll be, uh, I'll be listening in um, on the internet here. So God bless you all. Love you.